The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. So, turn in your Bibles, if you have them, to 1 John chapter 2. Uh, 1 John 2. I realize as I'm getting older, I still use paper. I mean, I, I, I still preach from notes like this. It's kind of weird what guy, reading, having guys read from their, their smartphones. I say that happens at River of Grace. I'm just on that old side. All right, 1 John chapter 2, and uh, this morning we'll be looking at verses 12 through 17. And what we're going to talk about is ha- uh, having a perspective of life or life in perspective. And as we read this, it's going to start with kind of a poetic thing and then uh, end with uh, con- some more direct instruction. A couple months ago, I was in a uh, staff meeting, and we, um, this was Acts 29, and we, we didn't know each other. We'd kind of been put together uh, over through the pandemic, and so this is the first time we were all in a room together. So they did some ice-breaking questions like, where are you from? Where were you born? Uh, you know, what, 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 are, what's your, what are your passions? What are your hobbies? You know, how would you, one of the questions was really kind of cool. How would you spend a perfect day? One guy said, on, on a pond fishing for bass. I thought that was the dumbest answer in the world. But anyway, uh, that to tell you not that's not what I'm about. But um, as I thought about that, it helped reflect upon, like, I was born in Warsaw, New York, out halfway between Rochester and uh, uh, Buffalo, New York. Uh, but I really grew up here in New Hampshire. That sort of defines, gives a perspective of my life. Um, and then when we think about who you are, we think about parents, we think about spouse, we, if you have one, we think about children, you think about brothers and sisters and siblings, I guess that's the same thing. Uh, Those questions give us a perspective of who we are in our lives. But as Christians, as a broader question, living in a very um, sort of, well, becoming a Christian means I'm confessing Jesus because I've got a warped view of myself in the world, right? Like I am, I've got an all messed up view of my, of what things are. Have you been to an amusement park? Okay, I don't know. Again, I'm aging myself, but as a kid, we have in New Hampshire state fairs, and we live near the Hoffington State Fair, and they had uh, frequently they'd have the um, like House of Mirrors, and you'd walk in, and they, some would be glass, some would be mirrors, and you you were just sort of like you're losing like your your perspective of where you are are. But what really gets crazy is when they have one of those mirrors that shows you really short. Are really tall. I mean, it, it distorts your perspective of who you are. Well, that's really the world. You and I are walking through a world, bumping into class, and then seeing ourselves in warped views. We see ourselves distorted from how uh, who we really are and who God says we are. It's interesting as you spend your time at a, a state fair in New Hampshire. You know, you you spend a lot of money, eat a lot of food. We went this year, and without as you're older and we don't have any grandkids yet. I'm looking up there to, to do my kids. No, there's kidding. Um, my wife and I have this thing. We want kids. Uh, so it was just adults and all we, we didn't do any rides. All we did was eat. It was really like eat fair food, you know, but at the end of the day, you walk out, you're tired, you're poor and the fair's over. That's kind of a really good picture of life. Like, we're all in a distorted world. Like, we keep bumping into things and see a warped view of ourselves. We spend a lot of energy. We eat a lot of food. And then it's over. 
We need help figuring out who we are and where we are. And so today's text deals with those things, who we are and where we are. And the big, the big idea here is that through the Father's love, which is the context of 1 John, our perspective of who we are, we have a perspective of who we are and where we are or where we live. And as we set this up, as, we, as we're going to read 1 John uh, chapter uh, 2, starting verse 12, this whole idea that God is love is mentioned later on in this book. Like, that, that's one of those powerful statements, right? Like in early part of 1 John, it says God is light. And then later part, it says God is love. What, is it, what does this help us see about who we are and where we are? And so we're going to just learn two things this morning. We're going to learn the perspective of being family and the perspective of being foreigners. Okay? Family and foreigners. All right. If you have your Bible, 1 John chapter 2, verse 12. I'm writing to you, little children, because you are, your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I'm writing to you, children, because you know the Father. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the, from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong. And the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Stop right there for a moment. Starts with the perspective of family, who we are. Now, what we get here is kind of this poetic thing. Like there's like six stanzas or six lines, and it starts out with children, then it goes to fathers, and then young men, and then it repeats: children, fathers, young men. And and this line he begins with: "I am writing to you." This gets he mentions this many times. In fact. One time he says in 1 John, I'm writing to you that your joy or our, our joy would be full. I'm writing, he, one other time he says, um, I'm writing to you that you may not sin. So he has a lot of reasons for writing this, but now he's addressing uh, the congregation, Christians, and he has these three categories, and he goes through this cycle twice, sort of rhythmic. The other thing that's important about this is when you read these, and he says, I write to you children, I write to you fathers, I write to you young, young men. He's, he's saying things that, and I'm not great with languages, but I once took Greek and said this whole idea of the perfect tense, that the, pre, the present consequences are secured in the past. But let's look at this. We've got these broad categories of family terminology. By the way, your family, my family, it's, it's temporal, it's, it's, it's transient. If it, God created the family to point to the ultimate family where he is father. So the terminology that gets used in the Bible the most is about family. And so this broad category of, of God's children, then we get this narrowing vision of fathers in the, in, the, in the church family, and then young men. So as we look at this, the first line there says, I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Thirteen times, I believe, thirteen times in John, he calls the church children. That's his favorite term. He calls them children. And that, that sets the tone for what is our primary identity. We are family. Now, he includes himself in this, ironically, if in 1 John... He says in 1 John chapter 3, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. So if you hear nothing else this morning, 
in Christ, the ultimate identity you have is you're a child of the Father. Now, he says of the children, I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. So if the primary identity is, is family, is children, the primary focus of those children is forgiveness. At the end of the day, the thing that sets, sets Christianity apart from every world religion is that God has come to forgive our sins and adopt us as children. That's, that's if you're going to encapsulate, and this is why, like, little kids can understand the gospel. I came to Jesus when I was just, like, four or five, seriously. I knew the way to sin. I, I remember climbing the stairs of the parsonage of the church in Epsom, finding my dad, reading his Bible, sitting in the rocking chair. I still have that rocking chair. And asking him to get Jesus on the inside because the weight of sin was so heavy on a four-year-old. And then asked, he helped me give my life to Jesus, invite Jesus to take away my sins. And I went out and played my G.I. Joe. Everything was fine. Everything was cool, you know. And that's the primary identity of being who we are, is that we are family, but we are children. And that children who are forgiven. I know we do it at River Grace and do it here. We do communion every week. Because at the end of the day, we are proclaiming Christ's death over us until he comes back. We are proclaiming his forgiveness. And we need this reminder. We need a reminder that we are children of God who are fully forgiven. John deals with this in this text a lot. He says, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. So we, we need to be reminded that we are God's children who are forgiven. All right? Now he changes, he, he moves from children to fathers. And I have to tell you, this, is, uh, this text here, reading it now at 58 years old, I for the first time feel like I fit that category. I think when I was 57, I think I, started, I still thought I was a little child or a young man. Not anymore. Because he says, he says, I am writing to you fathers because you, you know him who is from the beginning. Clearly referring to Jesus. What is this talking about? Well, these are the mature men in the church who have been shepherding, have been role models, who have been walking with Jesus a long time. And... They have this familiarity, this fellowship. They have known Jesus from the beginning. Some who John has was writing to may have actually met Jesus. That's what they're referring to. But what he's saying to them, which is another identity of being in the family, is that you have intimacy. You have, you've become, let's just call it comfortable, with Jesus' reliability. That was how I define my life. That I am very comfortable with Jesus' reliability. That he is faithful to his children. And part of, I think, older guys in, in, in the church, part of our role is to remind younger people in the church that Jesus will be reliable for you. He will carry you through. Whatever he's, he's designed for your life, his sovereignty over your life, he will see you. He is reliable, and you can count on that. This is what we know, that Jesus is reliable. The fathers have known him who is from the beginning. As we think about this, so we've talked about children, little children. 
He says, I'm writing to you because your sins are forgiven. Oh, by the way, I didn't mention, he says, for my name's sake. So like when you feel like your sins are way like beyond what Jesus could handle, listen, it's not about you. It's about his glory. He's glorified to forgive sins. To think that he can't forgive whatever secret sins or whatever past sins weigh you down. Listen, he's glorified. For his glory, he loves to lift the burden of your sins and my sins. We need not walk in shame. It's about his glory. Now, now, and as you walk with Jesus, you get to know his reliability. And I can tell you, I've been tracking with Jesus here since I was 14 years old. You know, I've wandered and have my own baggage of, of, of uh, sin from the past and sin from yesterday that I'm ashamed of. We all still wrestle with sin, but we are forgiven for his glory's sake. And I'm going to tell you, Jesus is reliable. Whatever stage you're at, he's reliable. The third category is young men. I'm going to use the term warriors. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. You have fought and beat up the bad guy. So why is he using young men here? Why young men and not young men and women? Why earlier did he say, um, why did he say fathers and mothers? First of all, it is only Christianity that has taught the equality of men and women. Okay, it's only Christianity. That, that is the basis of why in our whole world we sense there's equality between men and women. Other cultures and religions abuse and subjugate women. Now, modern culture has ridden, has ridden this wave of Christianity's cultural influence and taken unhealthy directions with it. Okay, so rather than celebrating the difference between men and women, they put them at odds. They put them at war. And of course, sin does that. The culture doesn't need, need help with that. Um, I mean, yes, sin, sin is embedded in it. The abuse of power fits into the role of men who have a bigger frame. So there's more men who are abused. And so culture rides that wave, but rather than looking to the answer who is the forgiving Christ and understanding the world as, as he made it, we often redefine what God has called good, and most recently tried to ignore even the significance between female and male. We believe in the equality and, and value, of, the, but we also believe that the makeup of men and women are designed by God to be very different. Men are to be warriors. Women are to be nurturers. That's, that's just the way it is. By the way, if you're a woman, you like to hunt, and I know they're just, see, it's hunting season, so a bunch of my friends are, are, are showing pictures of dead animals, like on Facebook, and um, like, and they're, you know, they're, I'm not saying there aren't women who like to hunt or all that stuff. I'm just saying that when God made us, he made us very different. And right from the beginning, when, when a male seed competes with a million others to win the right to perpetuate the species, men are fighting in, in a fighting mode. If John were to write this today, he may have said fathers and mothers or young women and young men, but I don't think so. I actually think he is um, that uh, I don't think we need to hide the God-given differences and celebrate. I think we need to celebrate how we complement each other. And I think he's talking to, um, to elders and aspiring elders here. And, and what he's saying is here, there's a serious battle against dark forces raging around us. Throughout this text, we don't have time to look at it. There's, 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 this, there's this picture of, of God being light and the darkness and, and this battle. 
and at the sort of at the spear's point of this battle are young men who believe Jesus and are willing to lead the charge in the battle against darkness. And so he starts here addressing him, saying, I'm writing you a young man because you have overcome the evil one. Does that mean old men haven't overcome the evil one or old women or young women? No, it means that these guys are leading the charge. And I just want to applaud and urge you guys, you young men in the church, we are called, we, you, um, you are called to lead the charge, lead the fight against darkness, set the pace, take the initiative, all the things that you would, you would uh, embody in being a warrior. Because there's a serious battle that rages over, the, uh, over us for, for our hopes, our future, truth, and, and, and the love of Christ. 1 John 3.10 says, By this it is evident who are children of God and who are children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So here's where, young men, you start to overcome the evil one. Start by loving the other people in God's family. Lead the charge in love. That's, the, that's, that's at the essence of it. We don't have time to talk about that. But young men are being addressed here because you are, you are enduring the battle that rages against the light of God, which is the love of Christ in his family in this dark world. That's a lot. Well, he's done the cycle once, and now we go through it again. We will, we will go through it kind of quicker. But he says, he goes in, in uh, he says, I am writing to you again now uh, in the middle of verse 13. I write to you children because you know the Father. So we've gone from children whose sins have been forgiven to children who know dad. If there's, we've already said this, but the identity of, of Christianity is family, but we are children who've been forgiven and we know a father's love. We have been forgiven and we walk with the father. This is an interesting text in Jeremiah chapter 31. It talks, kind of get, alludes to this. Like, it would be a sick family where like half the kids knew dad and half the kids didn't know dad. That would be sick. We were meant to be intimate with our, our dad. Jeremiah 31, 34 says, And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquities, and I will remember, remember their sins no more. That Jeremiah 31, 34 passage really kind of relates to this, because it's assuming forgiveness, and it says whether, whether you're young in the faith or young in age, regardless, we can know the Father. We can know His intimacy. And one of the applications we'll end up in a moment is this idea of, what does it look like for me to have enough time during the day to know, know, know Dad? Know my heavenly Father. How do I how do I set enough time aside? He's got the time. Do I got the time? All right. So again, we're cycling back through. We started with children, fathers, young men. Now we're back to children. He says, "I write you, children, because you know you have intimacy. You walk with you walk with our heavenly Father, Dad." Then he's to fathers again. As fathers, he says the same thing. I thought about this. Why did he say the same thing to fathers? Is it because we're so forgetful as we get older? No. But he does say this. He says, I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. You've known Jesus. Now, why is that a repetition? Because at the end of the day, 
that that's 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 what that's what maturity looks like. You just keep walking with Jesus, and you know his reliability. There's nothing more really to add to it. And so the repetition of this is not sort of like old men forget. It's like at the end of the day, you have intimacy with the reliability. You're super comfortable with how reliable Jesus is to his children. And and whatever comes, whatever comes, you can. Jesus is reliable. Then he ends back with uh, young men again, but he changes it. He says, I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. So he's expanded what he said earlier. He said, he said earlier, I said, I write to you, young men, because you overcome the evil one. How do you overcome the evil one? You strengthen your faith in Jesus and you and, and the word of God become abides in you. The word of God is the Christ centered um, revelation of Jesus throughout the word written word. As the word abides in us, we are able to overcome the evil one. And so we'll end with an application again. Like, how is how are you spending time with the Father and allowing the word of Christ to dwell in you so that you can overcome the evil? All right, so this is who we are. We're family. We're children. We're fathers. We're young men. We are all, we, we are all, we, we, we are defined by forgiveness. We're forgot, uh, defined by knowing the Father. That's who we are. We are family. But then he, he just shifts to like, but you're also foreigners in the world. Look what it says in uh, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is of the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Do not love the world or the things in the world. What, what is this talking about? Well, it's kind of like being a foreigner in a place that isn't, isn't right. It's not where you fit. The world is a very broken place with a lot of beauty that we see. And, and I know you guys have just done a, um, a series, All Things New, which is longing for all the creation to be restored. And, and as we follow Christ, we're able to bring some of that kingdom restoration work to where we live and what we do. But this world is very broken. Recently, back in September, October, um, uh, can't remember her name now. Um, she wrote a she wrote an article in Gospel Coalition called "Christians Living in Afghanistan," and it it it, it says this. Every time our president or his press secretary talk about the American withdrawal from Afghanistan, so now we're talking two months old news that's two months old. Um, they refer to evacuating Americans who want to leave Afghanistan. That's a critical line. On the surface, it seems that's an odd description. Don't all Americans want to leave Afghanistan? Who wants to stay in a place where the Taliban are, are fighting, uh, are figuring out what it looks like to rule again? The author says, I even heard commentators mock President Biden on her podcast last week for describing any American in this way. She was baffled, even angry. No American wants to stay in a country overrun with terrorists, she said. But the author of the article says, but there are indeed Americans and other nationalities, by the way, who want to stay in Afghanistan. I don't know how many, and I don't know the story of each one, but there are more who want to stay than you might think. Why? Because they love God and they love Afghans. These are missionaries who have, already counted the cost. 
They have left home and family and comfort and security well before the U.S. decided to evacuate. Many have been there since before the U.S. military arrived. They've been all in for years, and they have no intention of coming back now. They will live out their lives sharing the love of Jesus in a very dark place. The author continues, several years ago, a young aid worker, a friend of our friends, was killed by the Taliban in Afghanistan. Violence from the Taliban had been increasing in the region, and both her sending agency and the State Department were urging all American aid workers to leave the country. Her response at the time was, please do not make me leave Afghanistan. It will kill me if I have to leave. She intended to give all her remaining days to providing medical relief and the gospel to Afghans. One day, a Taliban terrorist hit a gun under a fake arm bandage bandage and entered the clinic where she and other Christians were providing medical care. He opened fire and killed many aid workers, including her. He said, he later said he had to do it. In his words, if they keep doing what they're doing, then the whole country would believe in Jesus. That's, that's a really good picture of what it means to be a foreigner living as God's children in a hostile land. We are foreigners in a dangerous world. This world hates its creator and anyone who loves the creator. By the way, the world here is not a geographic border, but a place of demons and devils, of lies and lust. And the worst place where we have to fight it is the world that's embedded in our soul. He says, he says uh, John says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So if our primary identity is forgiven children of God who know the Father, and we live in a world who hate the Father, we are, we are not of this world. But then he, he goes from talking about opposition to the Father to this embedded world within us. And he talks about the three forces. The three forces aren't out there. It's not some political party. It's not, it's not, you know, what happens in the elections in Honduras today. It's not, that's, that's not the world he's talking. He's talking about the world, the battle in our souls. He says there are three desires of the world that we have to battle. He says for all that is of the world. And he says the desires of the flesh. Those are the appetites untethered from holiness. Good appetites that have been perverted from being God-centered to being self-centered. Appetites that are self-gratifying rather than um, gratitude-based. Rather than eating with a, a simple joy from being provided for by the Father, we eat to consume what we want because it tastes good and it's all about filling our own bellies. That would be the desires of the flesh. They're the desires of the eyes. Gain more stuff for self or... I want to experience more things for me. Rather than generosity, we look about self. Forgetting what the Father says, do not fear, little flock. It is my Father's intention to give you his whole kingdom. You know that in Christ we inherit everything. There's nothing withheld from you. Therefore, we can give with crazy generosity. Side note, off-ramp for a moment. All that generosity is talking about those ways of giving. Give, give, give like the world is yours because it is. 
we, we use Financial Peace University up at River Grace because New Hampshire citizens are some of the most stingy in the United States. We rank 50th when it comes to charitable giving per capita. Dead last, New Hampshire. That means our job is to help you become the most generous Christians out of the most stingy citizens. That's a CNN financial report that was just out like two months ago. So it hasn't changed. We like, we're, we're, we're comfortably deceiving ourselves that somehow generous as a, a state, we are not. The desires, the eyes of this battle within us that, that um, in my life, I've watched professing Christians get bogged down with the weight of possessions and the ineffectiveness and witness because they believe the deception that life is about comfort. No. This is, this is a battleground. We are at war. And there's, there's, there's no center ground. There's not like nice people in the middle, like followers of Jesus and workers for the devil. If you read John, he says, no, you're either a child of God or you call God a liar. That's chapter 5. So the battle that's going on within us is the desires of the flesh, appetites untethered from holiness, desires for the eyes, gain rather than generosity, pride of life, ambition on focus on self, power, possessions, prestige, rather than ambition on the one for whom God, all things were made, that's Christ. I mean, it's, it's written all over our lives, right? Like, I don't have a Jesus phone, I have an iPhone. This is about me, you know, like... This is, this is the way the world cloaks itself. And where's the battle? Inside of David Pinkney and inside of you. And so we've seen that this world opposes the Father. It's embedded deep within us. And that, that uh, this perspective of foreigners, that at the end of the day, we have to realize this is temporary living. This world, he says in verse 17, and the world is passing away with all its desires, but whoever does the will of, the God, of God abides forever. You know, Jesus said, I came down from heaven not to do my will, but the one who sent me. That, that's who we are. We are like Jesus, that we're here to do the Father's will. He taught us to pray. When we, we follow the model prayer, the Lord's Prayer, in there it says, Lord, your will be done. That means whatever his will is for my life, your life, that we are submitting ourselves to that daily. How liberating and lovely your life will be unshackled from the dark forces of this world. Rather than doing what you want and getting what you can, and making the most of life, what a beautiful life it is when you and I realize, I, I belong to the Father, I'm forgiven, and, and this temporary world, he has a plan for me in it. And so now I can give what I can, make the most of Christ, and wait for the Father to end this, this season where we enter into the eternal state of paradise, being home, food without calories, you know, a, no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor has entered into the mind of man what God has prepared for his children. You and I can't think about how good it will be in that place. So, this perspective of the text helps us understand we are family, primarily identified as forgiven and knowing the Father, and we are foreigners. We are foreigner, foreigners in a world that's opposed to the Father, that's embedded within us, and it's super temporary. But in the Father, we have the ability to live out a life that is filled with, and this is interesting, when John wrote this book, 
he, he began it by letter. He began it by saying, I write these things that our joy, our happiness might be full. When you and I realize we are family and we are foreigners, it enables us to really be happy. So here, here are a couple applications, the ways I've thought about how would this apply to our lives here? How would this apply to us following Jesus? How do I keep perspective as a child of God and as a foreigner? Well, take weekly communion to dwell in the Father's forgiveness. I'm going to say this as a Protestant. There is something mystical about communion. We're not just, I don't know how the form here is. You use the little cups, you peel back, and you're still doing that. Um, that's what we do. I mean, it, it's so it's so sterile. It just doesn't, doesn't feel right, like Jesus in a sippy cup or something. I don't know. Um, but the mystery of it is we are proclaiming and we're internalizing. There's something about internalizing the bread representing Christ, that he is my he, he satisfies and sustains me. His cup, that blood is sufficient for all of David Pinkney's billions of sins. So take communion every week to remember the Father's forgiveness. That is, just make it an effort. I know it's hard with in virtual church, and, and I, you know, this thing will end. We will get together. Some of you are just being lazy in your pajamas, but I'm looking up there. Um, you know, uh, some of you are just, just using this as an excuse to satisfy your own flesh. Some of you have legitimate concerns. That's cool. But taking communion every week is a refreshing way of dwelling in the Father's forgiveness. Second, take time daily in, to center your life in knowing the Father. At the end of the day, my time in the Word and prayer is really intimacy with Dad. Your flesh might fight against it. Your body's tired. You're, you've got a lot of things on your agenda. But those 20 minutes with the Father will so ground your day. Confess ways you are susceptible to loving the world. How has the love of the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, how has it infiltrated your belief system? What do you think you have to have to be happy? Rather than what do you think, rather than transforming your heart, saying, how much can I give away? You know, just that's what we're working against. Maybe it's pride of life. Maybe it's about a position. Maybe it's about a profession. Finally, what choices that, um, let's see, what choices that detach you from the world and attach you to the Father? Oh, make choices. I'm sorry. Yeah, make choices. Yeah, what, what, like practicing, like just practicing generosity is one way to do that. You know, I, I feel a personal mission in my life to help, help you as followers of Jesus in New Hampshire become the most generous Christians in the most stingy state. Figure that out. I mean, I, I, we can talk about that later, but like like 10% is like a pretty good biblical standard for the beginning of generosity. And I've watched far more single moms and poor people tithe than wealthy people. It's really scary. All right, that's enough. I want to I, I end with this. We want to do all this to reinforce who we are. We, are. we are the children of the Father. Do you think you and I could sacrifice something that the Father's not going to later somehow honor? Because he loves his kids. And where do we live? This is not home. And so the Father's love keeps our perspective of who we are. We are family. We're the Father. We're forgiven. We are family. That's our primary identity. And we are foreigners. We are foreigners. We are really aid workers in a hostile land. Let me pray. Well, Father, thank you that our identity is not in our address here or our, our um, net worth, 
or educational accomplishments or our status as, as human beings, but it is in you. And Father, for those of us who are forgiven and we know you as dad, as father, as, as the Holy One who has adopted us and given us full rights to inherit all that is Jesus, Lord, we, Father, we love you. Thank you that in Christ all of our sins are forgiven, that his death, his burial, his resurrection has secured for us our, our forgiveness, our sustaining sanctification, and eventually our glorification. Thank you. And thank you, Father, that even though we are foreigners in this land, you've called us to love the people in this world. Help us to do it by fighting the world that's embedded within us. Now bless us, Lord, as we walk out what you have taught us today. In Christ's name. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.